Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our holy Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire yet In like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do, all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea. Casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for them, for those for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute, execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontent, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit but you beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the holy spirit keep yourselves in the love of god waiting for the mercy of our lord jesus christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Lord, I pray that you would just use me right now, use me as a vessel to communicate your truth. Thank you so much for Jude, how you use Jude to portray your word to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us, keep us from being distracted in these moments. Keep our mind focused on your word. The plans for today can wait. The random thoughts can wait. Keep our mind focused on you and your truth. Lord, use me right now. In your name, amen. So I'll be preaching. The main passage that I want to go to is Jude 20 through 25. So, so the last five verses. But I feel we must, to get to the end, we must go through the beginning. So my plan is to start at verse 1 and just walk through the first 19 verses. So the goal is so that we can understand the last five verses in their context. What is Jude saying? Who is Jude? Who is he writing to? What, what is going on in this setting? Also, we can understand these last five verses. There's a lot in the first 19 verses, but the goal is to walk through so we can get to the last five and understand Jude's thought, understand what's happening, what is the context. So with that, let's start at verse 1. Who is Jude? Um, not, not much is known about Jude. He's rarely mentioned in Scripture. We really, there's really not too much to gather about him apart from this book that we have, and there's a few other places mentioned. Um, he is the half-brother of Christ. And he also mentions James. And so looking at James verse 1, we see how James starts off his, his book. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, James doesn't mention his direct relationship of him being the half-brother to Christ. The same as Jude doesn't. And then there's another interesting verse where Jude is mentioned and his brothers um, in John 7, verses 1, I think it's 1 through 5. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So this is Jude, half-brother of Christ, James as well. Not even Christ's half-brothers believed in him. That is, that is who's writing this book. At one point, Jude did not believe. Even his own brothers didn't believe in Christ. But... Now Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, not even mentioning his direct relationship to Christ, refers to himself as a, a servant. Or I know, I know some translations 
Use the word slave, the doulos, a servant, a slave. I mean, imagine that. This is Jude, who at one point didn't even believe in his half-brother. I mean, and now, now to call himself, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, I'm a servant, not even addressing his direct relationship. And we, we see how the letter goes. If ever there was a time to address hey, I'm the half-brother of Christ, you better listen. I think now would be the time, but, but we see Jude's humility in, in his address. The, the exact location of the church is not known. Um, so we, we really don't know much besides what's kind of already here. We don't know who he's speaking to. Um, so why, why is Jude writing this book? Um, and, and he says it right in, I believe, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to, eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude, I, I picture as a ship or some mode of transportation, it, it, it set courses this. I wanted to talk to you about our common salvation, but certain people have crept in unnoticed. You know, he has to urge them. He has to deviate from his original course, urge them to contend for the faith. So I want to talk to you about salvation, but this is more pressing right now, that I urge you. There's a sense of urgency throughout this whole letter I urge you to contend for the faith, for men have crept in unnoticed. So the threat is internal. We're, we're not talking about worldly oppression, um, you know, the government bearing down. We're not, we're not talking about this. This is an internal threat. People have crept in unnoticed, and there's these problems that Jude has to deviate from what he was going to originally say to now he has urged these people to contend for the faith. So that is, that's the context of why Jude is writing to these people. There's a lot in um, verses 6 through 16. I, I, I find it so interesting that we see Jude's intent to write to these people, to urge them to contend for the faith. And you would think naturally he would start by addressing the believers there, those who are believing, those who he is urging to contend. But instead he, he goes on this verses 6 through 16, and he just he describes these ungodly people. He reminds them of the judgment that's going to happen to them. And I, I think we can gather from... Verse 5, I think his, his audience is largely Jewish. He's having to remind them what they already know. Their past, their history, what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah, what God did in Egypt, what God did to Korah, Balaam, Cain. Let me remind you what you already know. There's, there's a sense of rebuking. You know this. Let me remind you again of your own history, where you came from, how God dealt with these people. So he goes on and, and just describes the judgment coming to these ungodly people. He goes into such 
great detail describing these people. And we see that in starting verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the seas, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. He blasts these people, these false teachers. And, and you, for a moment, imagine if, if you were where you're at and you're being read Jude's letter. Just imagine this. He is just blasting these ungodly people, reminding them of the judgment that is going to come. It's so interesting that he addresses this problem and he doesn't right away say, kick these people out. There isn't an immediate call to action to get rid of these people. He reminds them, this is how the Lord deals with ungodly people. And the Lord will deal with ungodly people. So he spends most of his his time, um, you know, we know who Judas, half brother of Christ. He wanted to write to them about sal- their common salvation. He has to change course, right? Urge them to contend for the faith. He goes on to remind them of what they know, the impending judgment for these ungodly people. He describes the ungodly people, and then we get to verses twenty through twenty-five. So the whole point of that is just to kind of grasp what's, what's the context, what's the mood of Jude and what he's writing. You know, he's urging them to contend for the faith. And now we get to verse 20, where, where there's a shift. So he changes from speaking about the ungodly, the unrighteous, these false prophets who have come in, and now he's addressing the believers directly. But you, beloved, building up yourselves in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So let's just go through verse by verse. There's three sections in here, um, verses 20 to 21 and then 22 and 23, and then we'll end on 24 and 25. So I believe this is broken up into three parts. So Jude's now speaking to believers. And it's just, again, so interesting that he doesn't call the believers to immediate action of casting these people out. He focuses on them internally. That would that would not be my... My first response to my theory is, like, you just described all these people. You would think, like, you imagine, like, getting a mob together and casting them out of your church. But no, he, he speaks to believers directly. Urging them to build themselves up in their most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in love of God. So, going along with his command earlier to his point of this letter is he's urging them to contend for the faith. He tells them to keep themselves in the love of God. And he tells us how. 
it's easy to look at that and and it kind of be cliche. Hey, keep yourself in the love of God. Okay, what does that mean? How how do we as believers keep ourselves in the love of God? If in the beginning of the letter, Jude says to those who were called, beloved of the Father, and kept for Christ. So if we're already kept for Christ, why do we need to keep ourselves in the love of God? And we'll get to that later. But but Jude tells us how. How to keep ourselves in the love of God by in the beginning of verse 20. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. In the word um the word building in the Greek means to build upon something. So so Jude is commanding believers to build yourselves up in your most holy faith. But how can you build up on something if there's nothing there? So there must be something there that we are commanded to build upon. I want to I want to jump over real quickly to Philippians 3. Just just keeping in mind this whole concept of building. Paul says in Philippians 3 verses 12 through 17. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own brothers I do not consider that I have made it my own but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead I press forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal to you this also. Only let us hold true to what we've already attained. So Jude is urging the believers to build, to keep yourselves in love of God by building up your faith. Be active, be fighting, be learning, be growing. Don't sit idle. Build. So Again, in order to build upon something, there must be something there. So Jude is urging them, keep yourselves in love with God by building. It is active. The other point that Jude makes in order for us to keep ourselves in love with God is pray in the Holy Spirit. So easy to glance over. Praying is always the right answer, but praying is the hardest thing to do faithfully. Even as I, I was preparing for this, you know, da-da-da-da, oh yeah, praying. Even as I'm studying for this, I realize I need, the very thing I'm trying to urge you guys to do is the very thing that I'm struggling to do continually. We all know pray. Pray, pray, Christians. Last week's sermon, we're supposed to pray. But we can't glance over this. Build and pray. Keep yourselves in the love of God. So what does praying in the Spirit mean? Praying in the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit is the moving and guiding power in prayer. We pray according to His power and according to His direction. Please don't miss that. We pray according to the Spirit's power 
and the Spirit's direction. That is how we keep ourselves in the love of God. Again, it is active. Building, praying, keep yourselves in the love of God. Let's move on to the next the next verse. Keep yourselves in love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus, which leads to eternal life. This book is full of contrasts. This is one of them. Going back to verse 14. Compare what I just said with this. It was also said about these that Enoch... The seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. So, ungodly, they are going to receive judgment, but not, not you, beloved. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Amen. We wait, we wait for God's mercy, not his wrath. We're not under his wrath. The ungodly are under his wrath, but we wait for his mercy. And this mercy compels us to move forward onto verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Very interesting in these three verses, mercy is used three times. Mercy would probably not be the word that I would use to these doubters, these ungodly people, mercy. What about judgment? Cast them out. What about anything but mercy? But we need to remember what mercy is and the mercy that we have been shown. Let's look at Luke seven forty one. I know we're very familiar with this passage, this parable that Christ teaches. But let's remember what mercy is, the mercy that we've been shown. A certain moneylender had two debtors. So this is the story of the Pharisees are having a feast. The sinful lady comes in and is washing Jesus', Jesus feet. And so Christ tells this parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged correctly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wept my, she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, 
but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Almost any time I read that, I am rebuked. I love little because I think I'm forgiven little. But Jude commands, have mercy on those who doubt. We have been forgiven much and are commanded to love much, to have mercy, to have compassion. Jude goes on to mention three types of people in here. Have mercy, the first one, on those who doubt. Doubt I feel like doubt is something we don't want to admit, but every single one of us at some point faces. Doubt is common. But it it almost feels like to say I'm having doubts is almost like someone saying I'm thinking of abandoning the faith. We all have doubts. And Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. Those people who have questions have mercy on them. Just as we have been shown mercy. And the second type of people. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. In my mind, I think of snatching them out of fire, a deliberate action. I had, when I think of deliberate action, I had when I was younger... I had this bow and arrow, and I was shooting it up and watching it come down like that. And then I I got this brilliant idea. I'm going to shoot it straight up and run under it and look up at it. And and I did that, and I I got to the point where I was looking up at it, and then I realized this is a bad idea. (laughs) And I only had time to take half a step, and it came down and nicked my ankle. I took a deliberate action to get out of there. And, and so when I, when I think of deliberate action, I think of like that moment where you're like, act now. Snatch these people out of the fire. These, these are people. So the first group is those who are doubting. They have questions, but they haven't abandoned the faith. Now, Jude moves a little deeper to snatch them out of the fire. So, so we're thinking of people who are, who are kind of in the middle. And Jude says, get them out. Snatch them out. A deliberate action to try and rescue these people. Have mercy on these people who might be getting influenced by this false teaching that's going on. And the third type of person. To others, show mercy with fear. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we get the picture of a person who has completely abandoned the faith. There's a progression to those who doubt, those snatch them out of the fire, have mercy on others, but with fear. So, so Jew doesn't command us, they left, forget them. They're gone. He says, have mercy on them. The same mercy that we show to those who doubt. The same mercy that is shown to us. Have mercy on them, but but with fear. So kind of the picture of, you know, just we don't just cut them off. But 
There's mercy, but with fear. So kind of a, a give and take. Now to Jude's doxology. So Jude mentions three times mercy in these three verses, which I think is, there's a reason a word gets repeated repeatedly. He's making a point. Mercy. And now to Jude's doxology. This is one of the most amazing doxologies to just read through and remember. To him is able to keep us from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He keeps us from stumbling. Think of what these words mean in the context of this group of believers who are sitting here. So, so false teaching has infiltrated the church unaware and there are people doubting. There are people in the fire that need snatched out. There are people abandoning the faith. And Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Think about what that means. Christ can keep us from stumbling. But before we go on, let's first just simply de- define what is a doxology. So once we get that definition, it'll help us better understand what Jude, what Jude, the point he's making right here. Piper puts it this way. This is the way doxologies work. They refer first to something that God has done or will do, and then they ascribe attributes to God that account for the action or are expressed in the action. So for example, you might say, now hint, Now to him who fashioned the intricacies of the human eye and every molecule and atom in it, to him belong infinite, inscrutable wisdom and skill. Or you might say, Now to him who adopts dirty, abandoned, rebellious children into his family, to him belong compassion and boundless mercy. In other words, the attributes that you ascribe to God are the ones that account for the action you are praising or that come to expression in the action you are praising. His wisdom and skill are expressed in making the eye. So we have this definition. Christ has done three things. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless with great joy. What amazing words when you really think about that. He keeps us from stumbling. We are still commanded to keep ourselves, but he keeps us from stumbling. This is kind of a paradox. Um, So Jude says we are kept for Christ, but we are to keep ourselves in the love of God, but Christ keeps us from stumbling. So I'm supposed to keep myself in the love of God, but Christ has also kept me. Which is it? We can only keep ourselves in the love of God because God has kept us. Again, Piper says, over and over we see in the Bible this. God's action is decisive. Our action is dependent. 
and both actions are essential. So I urge you again to resist the mindset that cynically says, if God is the decisive keeper of my soul for eternal life, then I don't need to keep myself in love of God. That would be like saying, since God is the decisive giver of life, then I don't need to breathe. God is the keeper, but we must keep ourselves in the love of God. I can breathe because God has given me life, not because I breathe, so therefore I have life. We can only keep ourselves in love of God because God keeps us. Now to him who can keep you from stumbling and present you blameless. We're not under wrath. We await mercy. We are blameless with great joy. So interesting that Jude throws that in at the end. With great joy, we're presented blameless to him who can keep us from stumbling. And the reason he can do that is because He's the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Don't take for granted that you are sitting here in this chair, a Christian. Be amazed that you are a Christian. If Christ did not keep us, none of us would be here right now. If he did not keep us, there's no way we could keep ourselves. Spurgeon says, Dear brothers and sisters, we need keeping. Therefore, let us adore him who can keep us. As saved souls, we need keeping from final apostasy. I do, I do believe that doctrine and delight to preach it. Yet it is true that the saved ones would apostatize every one of them if the Lord did not keep them. There is no stability in any Christian considered in himself. It is the grace of God within him that enables him to stand. Do not read over this doxology and miss how much we need Christ to keep us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Every time I sing that song, yes. Prone to wander, yes. Lord, I feel it. Thank you for keeping me. So let's move on to, in closing, three points of application. Three things we can take away from this book of Jude. First, we must keep ourselves in the love of God through prayer and actively building up ourselves in our most holy faith, dependency on God and a desire to know more about him, desire to press toward the mark. Jude urges them to contend, take action, keep yourselves. Number two, we're accountable to each other. We cannot help each other if we are not involved with each other. This means taking time with each other and asking the hard questions. No fluff. We are one body of Christ. So we see these these people have mercy on those who doubt. How can you know who's doubting if you don't even know what's going on with them? How do we have mercy on people we don't even know? Or, hey, how are you doing? Good, good. Oh, you? Good, good, good. I hate that when people do that. 
Ask the hard questions. Have mercy on those who doubt, because they might be doubting and you don't even know. Get involved with each other. Know each other. We're one body. We're accountable to each other. And finally, the last point. Stand in awe of the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority that has kept you from stumbling and will keep you from stumbling until he presents you blameless with great joy in the presence of his glory. We need kept. We're sheep who want to go astray. If Christ didn't keep us, we wouldn't be here. If Christ was not keeping me, I no doubt I would not be a Christian, but Christ has kept me. In Matthew 24, 24, it says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead, if possible, even the elect. This isn't some cheap trick deception that's going on here. This isn't people who have infiltrated this church and, oh, there's a false teacher right there. These people crept in unnoticed. The deception is great. If possible, they would deceive the elect, but that is not possible because God keeps us. Don't, even in my mind, it's easy to kind of brush over false teachers and prophets. Like, one would walk in the door and be like, you are a false prophet, I can just tell. No. But God keeps us. So stand in awe of that. He keeps us. He presents us blameless with great joy. So in closing, let's just, let's read over Jude's doxology one more time, and then we'll pray. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless with, wrong section, (laughs) present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Before the world was even created, Christ kept you. And thus we are able to keep ourselves in love of God because of what he has done. Let's pray. Dear Father, We stand in awe of the fact that you would keep us. We are rebellious sheep, but you have kept us before all time. Lord, we, there aren't words that can express how much gratitude we ought to have or even should have or can utter. Lord, thank you for keeping us. We need kept every day. Lord, I pray that these words from Jude will not not be forgotten. We'll leave here. We have plans for the day. Another sermon done, another Sunday. Get ready for work on Monday, but our need is still the same. We need kept. We need you. We need your word in us. Lord, I pray as we leave this place 
we will stand in awe of you and what you have done for us and realize there was nothing in ourselves that could keep us, but it is you who keeps us. You give us life that we can breathe. To you be glory and dominion and majesty and power forever in your name. Amen.